You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus, tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. In September of 1952, Gary Heyman disappeared from the Lad School for the Feeble-Minded in Exeter, Rhode Island. The boy was just nine years old and described by the papers of the time as a mute. His disappearance from the school, which had a troubled and checkered history of mistreatment, crime, and violence, triggered the largest search in Rhode Island history. But Gary was nowhere to be found. After 16 days, a search party turned up the boy's clothes, which they found folded neatly near a small stream. After that, all leads went cold. The police in Exeter called off the search, concluding the boy had likely drowned. The administration at the lad school went back to their regular business. Gary Heyman might have been forgotten entirely. But his mother refused to give up. She told the Times-Dispatch of Richmond, Virginia, I can't leave anything undone. He's a beautiful boy. Mrs. Benjamin Heyman called the Times-Dispatch in December, two and a half months after Gary was last seen. She wasn't looking to attract interest in her son's case. What good would an audience of Virginian newspaper readers do her? No, she'd reached out to the Times-Dispatch for help. She'd just read in her own paper about another boy, Danny Matson, who had gone missing a year earlier in Quincy, Massachusetts. Like Gary, the authorities had just about given up on ever finding Danny. But according to the paper, he had just been found through the intervention of a Richmond-area psychic. Desperate for something, anything, Gary's mom had reached out to the Times-Dispatch in hopes that they would send one of their reporters to see the psychic and ask about her son. The paper said that they would. On December 7, 1952, Bill McGillen arrived at the house of the psychic who went by the name Lady Wonder. There was a lot of showmanship that went into Lady Wonder's prognostication, which we'll soon get to know in better detail. Suffice it to say for the moment that she didn't speak. She was mute, too. Instead, she spelled her answers out one letter at a time, with theatrical flair, like a Ouija board. When McGillan asked her if Gary Heyman was alive, she answered, Y-E-S. Before the reporter could ask another question, she continued, H. U. R. T. Where is he? McGillan asked, and Lady Wonder answered, Truck. McGillan asked three more questions that day and received three more answers. Where is the truck? Kansas. 
What kind of people is Gary with? Good. And, perhaps most importantly, can he be found? Y-E-S. When McGillan returned to the office, he called Mrs. Heyman and relayed what Lady Wonder had told him. Oh God, she said, I hope he's safe. I hope he's safe. She was confused about how her nine-year-old disabled son could have gotten from Maine to Kansas, but theorized he might have been hit by a car and carried away by some good Samaritan, unable to identify himself to anyone. When she got off the line with McGillan, she contacted the police in Exeter, told them all she had learned, and asked them to reach out to their counterparts in Kansas. They did, and the manhunt moved to the Sunflower State. There are, I'm sure you know, a lot of stories like this one, of psychics brought in to solve the unsolvable to locate lost people or uncover their killers. The first such case on record dates to 1845, when a clairvoyant pointed a literal finger at a juvenile offender who then confessed to some crime. And yes, that is a very vague description, but it's all we know. In 1901, a Norfolk, Virginia spiritualist called Madame Snell Newman had implicated Jim Wilcox in the murder of his 16-year-old girlfriend, Nell Cropsey. In Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a trance medium named Arthur Price Roberts earned international fame, claiming to have located several murderers, a couple of bodies, one mad bomber, and a stolen taxi while it was still on the road. By 1952, the world was more or less awash with would-be psychic detectives, and it still is today. But Lady Wonder was different. She wasn't just a psychic. She was also a horse. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Psych Out Part 1, Lady Wonder. According to her owners, Clarence and Claudia Fonda, Lady Wonder was born February 9, 1924, and purchased by the couple when she was just three weeks old, so that they had to bottle feed her. Also, according to Clarence and Claudia, they began to notice something different about Lady very early on. They said their first hint was that they could call the foal with their minds. Anytime they thought about her, she would come running. And one day, when her children were playing a game of hide the thimble, Lady stepped in, locating it no matter where they put it. Somehow from this, Claudia came up with the idea to teach Lady to spell, using her kids' alphabet blocks. Claudia said the young horse quickly mastered her letters and numbers, but writing this way was confusing and difficult, so Clarence gathered up a bunch of scrap metal and produced what basically amounted to a piano-sized, horse-operated typewriter. The typewriter was positioned in Lady Wonder's stable, so that she could reach the keys with her snout. 
and when she pressed down on one, a tin plate with a letter would pop up on the opposing side, so that whomever she was speaking with could spell out her part of the conversation. All of this would be impressive enough, or outrageous enough, or implausible enough, take your pick. But of course, Lady Wonder wasn't just a talking horse, she was a psychic horse. When Claudia and Clarence showed off Lady Wonder to their neighbors, said neighbors were thunderstruck. Not only was the horse communicating, but it knew things about them, their maiden names, the kinds of tractors they drove, etc. Word began to spread of this Lady Wonder the Wonder Horse, and soon the Fondas had a side gig on their hands. Three days a week, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, from 3 to 8.30 in the evening, Claudia would welcome visitors into the stable, where they would line up to ask Lady Wonder questions, 50 cents a pop, or three for a dollar. People would show up wanting to know where they should dig a new well or a new oil rig. A lot of the men came looking for a leg up on the numbers game, illegal lotteries. A lot of the women came hoping to learn the sex of their unborn babies. But it seems like Lady's biggest draw was sports. She predicted the outcomes of baseball games, football matches, and, by the same token, political elections. And in 1927, she made the biggest call of her then three-year-old life. Early on the morning of September 22nd, we see an empty soldier's field, Chicago, Illinois. But just 12 hours later, over 100,000 fans, a live crowd greater than any attendance at any baseball game, watches as the first round of one of boxing's most controversial fights begins. On September 22nd, 1927, Chicago's Soldier's Field played host to one of the largest sporting matches in modern history a boxing match between Jack Dempsey and Gene Tunney. The fifth and final million-dollar gate under the promotional reins of Tex Rickard. This fight sets the record that may never be broken. $2,650,000 official gross receipts from a live gate. Champion Gene Tunney will receive a cool $1,000,000 for 40 minutes' work. Lady Wonder had unpopularly predicted that Tunney would win the fight. And in the seventh round, that prediction looked rather poor. The fight itself follows a pattern similar to the first match. That is, until the fateful seventh round. Tunney, driven against the ropes, got absolutely pummeled, fell hard to the mat, and struggled to get back up. It looked to all the world like the fight was over, but it wasn't. Dempsey lands a potent right-hand counter, follows up with a series of seven devastating punches. Tunney goes down for the first time in his career. Dempsey stays near the fallen fighter, but referee Dave Barry points for Jack to move to a neutral corner. Only then does he begin the count. The favored and popular contender, Jack Dempsey, was a brutal, unforgiving fighter, and he was known to stick around when his opponents fell, waiting for them to start to stand again, at which point he cold-cocked them into oblivion. So at the Chicago match, they instituted a new rule. If the other guy went down, you had to go to your corner. But when the other guy did, Dempsey didn't. He stood over Tunney, waiting for him to get back up. Jack has forgotten the new rule. The count does not begin until he gets to a neutral corner. Instinctively, Dempsey stays nearby. Five seconds have elapsed before referee Barry is ready to begin the count. Gene looks hurt, dazed as the count begins. But here at the official count of four, when nine seconds have actually elapsed, 
He is looking at the referee and picks up the numbers. You be the judge. Could Tunney have risen at this point? This became known as the long count, and it cost Dempsey the championship. There's the bell. The fight is over. Gene Tunney overwhelmingly the winner. But the long count gives sporting buffs something to discuss whenever they get together. Whether Gene Tunney won the fight fairly or not has been a fight of its own ever since. But one thing was for sure. Lady Wonder had backed the right horse. The novelty of Lady Wonder predicting the fight of the century made for a story that swept the nation, and soon enough people were traveling from all around the country to visit. Lady Wonder had hundreds of clients a week, somewhere around 150,000 over the course of her career. Her audience was mainly made up of some unknown mix of gullible marks who honestly believed in her abilities and curious onlookers who just thought she was an entertaining lark. But that wasn't all. She also attracted reporters who wrote about her supposedly astonishing success rate. Papers wrote that she had predicted the winner of the World Series 14 times in 17 years. That she'd gotten every presidential election right in her entire life. According to the Chicago Tribune, Lady Wonder had managed to predict FDR's 1931 presidential victory before he was even nominated. All these reporters brought more reporters, who brought more dupes and looky-loos. And, in the immediate aftermath of the Long Count fight, the news of Lady Wonder attracted the attention of one very specific individual. A professor from Duke University, by the name of J.B. Ryan, who wanted to test Lady Wonder, to see if he could prove whether the psychic horse was on the level. Lady Wonder was happy to oblige. In 1586, a retainer to the Earl of Essex named William Banks purchased a foal he named Morocco. Like the Fondas, Banks supposedly raised Morocco with extreme affection and came to believe that the horse was special. He was so convinced, in fact, that he soon quit his job, sold all his possessions, used the proceeds to buy a set of silver horseshoes, and brought Morocco to London to perform. Morocco would walk on two legs, could pee on command and play dead. He would pull people out of the audience at Banks' urging, the man with the glasses, the woman with the red scarf, etc. He would divide the women of the audience into maids and mawkins, i.e. virgins and uh, not virgins. Banks would take donations from the audience and Morocco would tap his hooves to count them and even point out which money had come from whom. His most famous show, by far, was when Morocco was introduced to Queen Elizabeth of England and King Philip II of Spain. When put before the Queen, Morocco bowed deeply. But when Banks ordered him to do likewise with Philip, he instead bore his teeth, let out a loud whinny, and chased Banks off stage. In 1601, Banks and Morocco took the act to France, where they were twice arrested for sorcery. The second time around, in Olean, Banks was sentenced to burn at the stake, and only avoided that fate by ordering Morocco to kneel before the city's priests to prove there was no bedevilment about him. Instead of being uh, consumed in flame, Banks and Morocco walked out of Olean with a prize for their trouble. 
But in Paris, it was a different story. The authorities there didn't give the two a chance to show off their piety, so to save their hides, one literal, one figurative, Banks had to expose his methods, the secret signals he gave to Morocco on the sly. Learned horses were, from then on, a common sight at sideshows, carnivals, circuses, and theaters. A particularly talented example was the Horse of Knowledge, which performed at Astley's Amphitheater in London for several decades. The Horse of Knowledge inspired poems by Wordsworth and Byron. But the best description of the act comes from an anonymously published poem, entitled The Horse of Knowledge and the Water Box, which also has the added benefit of having been written from the horse's point of view. For I'm a horse of high degree, my name is Toby Willow Tree. Can circus feats perform with glee, canter or gallop, and where's the steed will prance with me? The Brentwood Wallop, at naming cards I bear the bell, on clock or watch the hour can tell. Count half pence, read, divine, and spell, turn mites to melons, and pump up guineas from a well in pints and gallons. The horse of knowledge got some steep competition in the 1780s when a Scottish traveling show started exhibiting the learned pig. The learned pig was in many ways like the learned horses that had been performing since Morocco. But there were two things that set it apart. First of all, pigs were considered stupid, the lowliest animals imaginable. One that could perform the feats of a horse caused major soul searching around the British Isles. Samuel Johnson theorized that pigs are actually some of the most intelligent animals, and that the only thing that had stopped humans from learning that fact earlier was that we tended to slaughter them before they reached maturity. Johnson died just before the pig arrived at London for him to inspect it himself, and an anonymous poem circulated, again, reading, Though Johnson, learned bear, is gone, let us no longer mourn our loss. For lo, a learned hog is come, and wisdom grunts at Charing Cross. It seemed the learned pig was smarter than the horse of knowledge, because while they performed many of the same stunts, counting, telling time, locating specific audience members, etc., it also talked. The pig was furnished with a set of typographical cards, upon which were written all the letters of the alphabet that it could draw from to spell out words, the capital cities of Europe, the surnames of volunteers, and even the inner secret thoughts of women in the crowd. The learned pig traveled to France in the 1780s, supposedly witnessed the revolution, and returned to England in 1789 to, quote, discourse on the feudal system, the rights of kings, and the destruction of the Bastille. In 1786, a pamphlet was published entitled The Story of the Learned Pig by an Officer of the Royal Navy, which purported to be constructed out of conversations between said unnamed officer and the pig explaining his life as well as his past lives. According to the story, the learned pig had been reincarnated over dozens of lifetimes, having started existence out as Romulus, first king of Rome, before passing through Brutus, Francis Bacon, the pun was intentional, and a stable boy called Pimping Billy, whom, the pig asserted, was the true author of the works of William Shakespeare. 
The deeds of the learned pig and the horse of knowledge were replicated many times over. At the turn of the 19th century, William Frederick Pinchbeck showcased the pig of knowledge to New England, eventually earning a meeting with President John Adams. Then came Toby, the sapient pig, who was so popular that Toby became a shorthand name for learned pigs to come. In Germany, at the turn of the 20th century, there were two particularly notable learned horses, one called Muhammad and the other Clever Hans. Both of them were capable of doing complex math. Muhammad, in particular, had an affinity for working out cube roots. Muhammad was also said to be musically gifted. Let your imagination run wild, because I have no idea how that gift is supposed to have manifested. While Hans could supposedly read and write. Muhammad died serving as a draft horse in the German army, while Clever Hans's fate is unknown, though very likely the same. What made Muhammad and Clever Hans stand out was that their abilities were scientifically tested, just as Lady Wonders would be. In 1904, the German Board of Education appointed a commission, led by psychologists Oskar Fungst and Karl Stumpf, to put Clever Hans through his paces. They asked questions of Hans under a variety of circumstances and came to some really fascinating conclusions. The first conclusion, which will probably surprise you, was that there was no fraud at play. Hans could and would answer questions even when his owner, Wilhelm von Austin, wasn't around. But, the researchers discovered, Hans could only answer correctly when the questioner knew the answer. Was Clever Hans the original psychic horse before Lady Wonder? No. Fungst showed that the problem was about cueing. When a questioner asked Hans some question, what is four plus five, say, or even what number am I thinking of, the horse would begin tapping its foot to count out an answer. But he wasn't stopping when he reached the right conclusion. He was stopping when he sensed the question asker was satisfied. Hans had come to recognize the body language and facial expressions of his interlocutors, watching them intently until he gave the result they were looking for, at which point Hans would receive a reward. Fungst then went back to his lab and replicated what he called the clever Hans effect with people who were subconsciously able to guess what number he was thinking of by the same exact method. Ten years later, when a group of psychologists from the University of Geneva, led by Dr. Edouard Claparède, evaluated Muhammad, they came to a very different conclusion. Claparède said that Muhammad's abilities were probably real. When J.B. Rhine arrived in Richmond in 1927 to evaluate Lady Wonder, it was not in the spirit of Claparède or Fungst. His interest was not primarily in whether the horse was intelligent. He wanted to know whether it was psychic. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I've spent a lot of time over the course of the constant trying to pinpoint the first scientific experiment ever performed. It is a tough task, both because the precise definition of what constitutes a scientific experiment is difficult to formulate, and because, past a certain point, the records of those studies become impossible to verify. Two of the contenders for earliest scientific experiment both come to us through Herodotus. We've already talked about one of them in the episode appropriately titled The Experiment. The other contender, though, the one we're really interested in for this story, also has the disadvantage of only having been written about by Herodotus, and it concerns Croesus, king of Lydia. In 550 BC, Croesus wanted to war with King Cyrus the Great of Persia, but before he did so, he wanted certain assurances that things would turn out right for him. So, he decided to consult the oracles. But how could he be sure that the oracles really knew what they were talking about? According to Herodotus, Croesus conducted an experiment. He sent vassals all around Greece and Lydia to all the known oracles and told them to wait 100 days. Then, they were to more or less simultaneously ask all the oracles what Croesus was doing at that moment. What he was doing at that moment was cooking a stew made of tortoise and lamb in a bronze cauldron, which is exactly what the oracle of Delphi said. So Croesus had his answer. All the other oracles were crackpots or scammers but the oracle of Delphi was the real deal. So assured, he then asked her what would happen if he invaded Persia, and the oracle answered that he would destroy a great empire. Sounds good, said Croesus, who attacked King Cyrus, only to learn too late that the empire he was destroying was his own. By 547 BC, Cyrus had defeated Croesus' army, sieged the capital of Sardi, ended Croesus' line, and decimated the Lydian Empire. It never recovered. Like so much of what Herodotus had to say, the story of Croesus and the Oracle of Delphi is probably bullshit, but it does resemble a certain kind of truth. In all recorded civilizations for all of human history, there have been those who claim to have secret knowledge. Things we might now call telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, necromancy. 
And since many of those people have held great sway, making and informing critical decisions, it's only natural that one of the first skeptical things humanity ever would have done would be to try to figure out if they were full of shit or not. The first person to formally think about this problem, at least in writings that we still have, was, to no one's surprise, fucking Aristotle. Specifically, Aristotle considered whether dreams could reveal truth things that happen in secret, at a distance, or in the future. In the end, Aristotle couldn't rule out the possibility of prophetic dreams, but he was generally skeptical, mainly because he thought that a lot of the people who claimed to have experienced them are people he disliked, gregarious, impetuous, or otherwise inferior types in his language. The gods clearly would never provide such a boon to those folks, so most reports of prophecy must be due to weak character interposing meaning incorrectly. And I have to say, I love this argument, not because Aristotle deploys a real sensible skepticism, something that isn't always a given for the dude, but because in the end, he thinks that skepticism is called for because he finds the people who talk about their dreams annoying, which isn't very strong reasoning, but damned if I don't agree with him. Between Aristotle's time and the rise of Lady Wonder, there were, of course, a countless number of people claiming to know the future, or witness events at a distance, or talk to the dead, or read minds, or other such astonishing tasks. And Aristotle's inconsistent skepticism was inconsistently applied. I'm not particularly interested in the vague quatrains of Nostradamus, and we already covered the fraudulent predictions of Mother Shipton in a previous episode. The hum of mystics oracles and diviners from most of human history are likewise not really worth our time. But the beginning of the modern examination of what we now refer to as psychic abilities or extrasensory perception is, I have to admit, pretty intriguing. On Thursday, July 19th, 1759, a brush fire broke out on Trouble Hill in the drought-ridden city of Stockholm. The flames were driven by strong winds to Maria Magdalena Church and then further through the city. The drought at the time was so severe that the only source of water to fight the fire was miles away at Lake Millar. Fire brigades were formed by panicked residents who crowded the shores, delaying the delivery of water, which would already have been insufficient. Eventually, dowsing the flames was given up on entirely, and the people of Stockholm instead began digging firebreaks, hoping to contain the spread of what is now called the Great Stockholm Fire, which consumed some 300 homes and buildings. Meanwhile, in Gothenburg, the philosopher, inventor, and Christian mystic Emanuel Swedenborg was sitting down for dinner with friends when he was seized by a vision. He excused himself from the table, went for a walk, and, when he returned, apologized, telling his friends that he could see a fire burning through Stockholm. He watched as it engulfed one of his neighbor's homes, and then, finally, was stopped three doors away from his own. The tricky thing is that Gothenburg is nearly 300 miles southwest from Stockholm, and according to reports, it took a full 10 days for word of the fire to reach the town and to confirm the details of Swedenborg's vision, allegedly to a T. Emanuel Swedenborg's vision of the Stockholm fire was investigated by another famous Emanuel, Kant, who concluded that the event, quote, seems to me to have the greatest evidential value among all, and indeed evokes the evasion of all conceivable doubt. 
What precisely went into Kant's investigation is left undescribed. Actually, it's not clear whether he himself performed the investigation or whether it was described to him by a friend. And honestly, if you go looking into things with a more critical eye than Kant, the story loses a lot of its luster. The first accounts of Swedenborg's vision don't show up until seven years after the fire, and they are written by Kant. And while there's a bunch of corroboration of the details, they all appear much later and seem to stem from Kant's description. Not to mention that Swedenborg's biographer, Lars Berquist, dates the dinner through Swedenborg's diaries as taking place on July 29th, 10 days after the fire, and just in time for word of it to have reached the mystic. Still, Kant's support of the Swedenborg anecdote really did light a fire of its own around the possibility of clairvoyance, and perhaps helped set the stage for the 19th century, when reports of and investigations into psychic phenomena really became hot and heavy, and with them, a new movement was born. Spiritualism. Although folks like Swedenborg and our old pal Franz Mesmer got the ball rolling, most people considered spiritualism to have truly begun with the Fox sisters. In 1847, the Fox family moved into a house in Hydesville, New York, outside of Newark. The house was supposedly haunted by a man who had previously been murdered there, and not long after moving in, the Fox family began to hear knocking and rapping. Soon after, the two youngest daughters, Kate and Maggie, were sent away, and the knocking followed them. There was knocking at their sister Leah's house, where Kate was staying, and there was knocking at their brother David's house, where Maggie was. After a short time, the sisters were again rehomed, together this time, at the Rochester, New York home of the prominent Quaker couple Isaac and Amy Post. The knocking intensified there, and the posts were convinced the sisters were somehow acting as conduits for communication from beyond the grave. Leah, with help from the posts, arranged for her sisters to perform a public seance at Corinthian Hall in Rochester on November 14th. The knocking, which at first had been random, was at this point turned into a very long-form code that allowed the ghosts to spell out messages. One knock for A, two knocks for B, three knocks for C, all the way down the line. The public was as astonished by the performance as the posts had been, and soon Leah took her younger sisters on the road, conducting seances for paying crowds all around New England. The Fox sisters were an absolute fad in what soon became known as spiritualism. Mediums communed with the dead all across America and Europe. Photographers produced eerie pictures of ghosts. Parties full of would-be spiritualists witnessed tables tipping, flowers growing, and strange voices on the regular. What set the Fox sisters apart from those who came before was a vague sense of the secular. Swedenborg, like the mystics before him all the way back to Aristotle and beyond, received his visions from God. There had always been people who claimed to levitate or speak in tongues or see distant events or speak to the dead, but these things were only made possible by some sort of magic, usually empowered by a deity or the devil. 
But in the mid-19th century, the religious world was falling to the wayside, and matters of faith were being supplanted by matters of science, particularly after Darwin's Origin of Species and all the attempts to grapple with its ramifications we talked about at the beginning of this year. Spiritualism came into this landscape perfectly fitted for it. It wasn't magic, performed by wizards or witches, and it wasn't religious, gifted from God or Satan. It was still supernatural, but with more emphasis on the natural, less on the super. In short, it looked a little teensy-eensy bit like science. It showed up just in time. Most people were still happy to hear out, if not accept, scientific theories like Darwinism, but they were ill at ease with what those theories seemed to imply about the human condition, that men were just animals without primacy or favor or souls. And when we died, maybe we just rotted in the ground like anything else. Spiritualism offered a way out of that existential dread and its popularity flared whenever people were faced with it, after the American Civil War, after the Napoleonic Wars, and especially after the Great War, World War I, and the Spanish flu that accompanied it. But we will get back to that. First, it is crucial that we explore the other thing that made spiritualism different from the religious mysticism that preceded it. It could be tested. There was nothing holy about spiritualism, nothing sacrosanct that defied criticism, as mysticism often did. The spirits communicating with mediums like the Fox Sisters wouldn't be offended by doubt or scrutiny. And since there was that faint sniff of science about the whole thing, it didn't take long for science to sniff back. In 1851, three physicians were sent by the University of Buffalo to investigate Kate and Maggie Fox. Doctors Austin Flint, C.B. Coventry, and Charles Lee found that when the girls were seated on a couch with cushions under their feet, the ghosts refused to answer and concluded that the sisters were producing the knocking themselves by cracking their toes. Two years later, the Harvard chemistry professor and inventor Charles Grafton Page examined the Fox sisters. He found that whenever he looked under the table at the girls' feet, the rapping stopped, and as soon as he sat back upright, it recommenced. He concluded that the seances were a trick, and not an especially well-executed one, either. Page then teamed up with Michael Faraday to see if they could uncover other such frauds. One of the most prominent spiritualist phenomena of the times was called table tipping, when a group of seancers would sit around a table with their hands laid flat on it and the whole thing would go wobbling about. This was some of the best evidence of the supernatural at the time, because it would often happen even when everyone seated at the table were skeptics, or even sometimes when just one skeptic was seated alone. Faraday worked out an experimental framework for testing table tipping. He covered tables with slippery cardboard sheets and marked their positions. The sitters would place their hands upon the cardboard and then wait for the table to wobble. If the table were moving on its own, Faraday thought, the cardboard ought to shift in the opposite direction since the hands would try to hold it still. But instead, every time, the cardboard shifted with the table a sure sign that the people sitting there were instigating the movements themselves. 
This unconscious movement, termed the ideomotor effect, would go on to be demonstrated as the cause for various other psychic phenomena, including dowsing rods and Ouija boards. Faraday and Page weren't alone. There were plenty of skeptical or else undecided observers who managed to debunk or explain away other mediums and effects. Particularly in the late 19th and early 20th century, there are numerous accounts of mediums being caught red-handed, sometimes literally red-handed, in some not particularly artful cons. But other mediums were more skilled, and other investigators were less leading to plenty of credulous reports of real psychic abilities. A lot of these, unfortunately, came from otherwise reputable and respected scientists. Folks like Alfred Russell Wallace, the co-discoverer along with Darwin of natural selection, chemist Robert Hare, who invented a precursor of the internal combustion engine, William Crookes, inventor of the Crookes tube, Pierre Curie, and Thomas Edison. Scientists like Hare, Wallace, and Crookes devised their own experimental apparatuses, like Faraday, but unlike Faraday's, theirs failed to detect deception. There was a strong sense among the budding field of psychic researchers that some effects were fraudulent, but others were at least partly real. And amazingly, many researchers who discovered a medium in the act of one fraud nevertheless kept the door open for that same medium to be legit in other instances. I probably don't have to say it, but essentially all of the effects and all of the mediums were fraudulent. There are, without doubt, people who actually believe in their own extrasensory powers, or that the dead actually communicate with them, but the mediums at the turn of the last century weren't like that. They were producing theatrical shows that required conscious trickery. A lot of it. And most of them were all too happy to invite some prominent scientists to examine them, because they knew what those scientists would be looking for. People like Curie and Edison were smart guys, observant researchers and lateral thinkers, but they didn't understand what they were going up against. The tools of science weren't up to the job because they assumed that observing and thinking were enough. They weren't, since those were the very faculties mediums were manipulating. Now, to get to the truth of these mediums, you needed to fight fire with fire. You needed magicians. John Henry Anderson was probably the greatest magician of the 19th century. He was billed as the Great Wizard of the North, a stage name given him by Sir Walter Scott. You know the Great Wizard of the North, even if you don't. He's responsible for the famous bullet catch illusion, and the first magician to pull a rabbit out of a hat. He had a long and illustrious career, beginning in the 1830s, that saw him evolving the practice of magic into a headlining art form. And after two decades of performing for kings, queens, czars, presidents, prime ministers, and more, he finally decided to retire in 1854. He gave one last show in his native Scotland, which was so enthusiastically received that he flinched. He wanted to keep doing magic after all, but he was done with the old act. The age of stage magic he had begun was coming to an end. So, Anderson crafted a new show, Debunking Spiritualists. 
1855, he opened at London's Lyceum Theatre with a show designed to expose the tricks being played by conniving spiritualists, particularly Ira Erastus and William Henry Davenport, the Davenport brothers, who grew up in Buffalo, New York. Hearing about the Fox sisters there, they decided to get in on the grift. The Great Wizard of the North began a new tradition that has lasted until this day of honest magicians taking on their dishonest cousins, psychics and mediums. Magicians were, in general, far better at rooting out fraud than other scientifically-minded investigators. And the best scientifically-minded investigators, like psychologist Max Dessois, who coined the term parapsychology, tended to have backgrounds in magic. Of course, the most famous magician skeptic is also the most famous magician full stop, and it is through him that we will finally begin making our way back to Lady Wonder the Psychic Horse, Harry Houdini. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. I don't think I have to explain to you who Harry Houdini was, but I probably do have to do a little work trying to puzzle out his interest in spiritualism. The story you're likely to know is the one that Houdini himself wrote in a 1922 article for the magazine Popular Radio. The passing away of my mother first started me on a serious investigation of the doctrines and claims of the spiritualists. Only those who have lost their loved ones can know the fervor with which such investigations can be pursued. There is no sacrifice I would not make to be able to get in communication with my mother. 
After years of research, I still hope there is a way of communicating with her from this life, but I have no faith in the existing forms of communication as known to mediums or practiced by them at this present time. This tidbit has been expanded upon over the last century. Houdini was a notorious mama's boy, fully and zealously devoted to his mother, and her passing in 1913 was a serious blow. So the story goes, he went looking for a way to reach her, visited medium upon medium, only to come away justifiably angry that hucksters were deploying the tricks of his very own trade to try to take advantage of his fragile state. So, eventually, he decided to expose them. It is a very good story, but as a number of Houdini's biographers have pointed out, it doesn't fit the timeline in either direction. For starters, Houdini was definitely aware of fraudulent mediums back to his early boyhood. He had written angrily about a number of them when he had a weekly column in the New York Dramatic Mirror in 1903. And in 1896, a medium in New York City performed a wedding between a doctor and his recently deceased fiancée. To many, this was a heartwarming story, but not to Houdini and his good friend Joseph Wren. In his 1950 book, 60 Years of Psychical Research, Rin describes Houdini as furious over the posthumous marriage. It was a pure fake, nothing else, he said hotly. Mediums always say that they require darkness to materialize a spirit, yet this stunt, it is stated, was performed in bright sunlight. Those crooked mediums are getting so bold that we should do something to throw a scare into them. So Rin and Houdini wrote up an anonymous letter, which they sent to the New York Mercury for publication. It read, As I frequently attend spiritualistic seances, where materialized spirits are said to come out of a cabinet, I wonder if I would be breaking any law if I fired a pistol shot at one of those figures and a dead body was found on the floor. According to Rin, the letter so spooked the spooks that no medium advertised in the New York papers for six months afterwards. Sort of doubt it, but clearly Houdini's ire for bunko spiritualists well predated the death of his mother. And there's no reason to believe that, following her death, Houdini attended any seances until almost ten years later, when he finally met the ghost of his dear departed mom, with the help of... Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Again, don't think I have to introduce you to Arthur Conan Doyle, but in case you're unaware of the great irony of his life, you should know that Doyle, inventor of Sherlock Holmes, maybe the most famous skeptic in literary history, was the dopiest dupe to ever dip. He was taken by every fraud and con to ever cross his path. Mediums, clairvoyants, telepaths, whatever. When a couple of young girls in Cottingley took photos of themselves playing with some figures cut out from the pages of a book, Doyle went to bat for the existence of fairies for the next 20 years. Many of the psychics he championed ended up exposed as phonies, who could have guessed? Including Julius and Agnes Zanzig, who confessed to their fraud in a front page editorial headlined, Our Secrets! Exclamation point. And then they went on to detail the exact tricks they'd employed. But no matter how many times 
he had a rug pulled out underneath him, Doyle just kept perching himself precariously, one leg raised upon the next one. During World War I, Doyle came to view spiritualism not just as real, but as a revelation from God, an answer to the endless suffering of the trenches, and he pitched it as solace to a weary world. Over the course of the war, he suffered losses himself, including that of his son in 1918, which only hardened his commitment. A lot of people were feeling the same way as Doyle. Spiritualism, which had been on the decline, sprouted up left, right, and center in the wake of the war and the Spanish flu. And Doyle was the main spokesperson for the movement. He was called the St. Paul of spiritualism. Doyle got in touch with Houdini in 1920, and the two struck up a friendship. They were two of the most famous men in the world at that point, but neither of them quite happy with the kind of fame they had, and each of them seems to have seen the other as the key to getting what they wanted. For Houdini, that meant being taken seriously. He was a beloved magician, the greatest of all time, most said, but he wanted to be seen as an artist, an intellectual. Doyle, being a foremost artist and intellectual, was just the ticket. But Doyle wanted Houdini because he believed in his connection to spiritual power. In an essay, Doyle wrote for The Edge of the Unknown, entitled The Riddle of Houdini, he argued that the magician was actually possessed by magical powers. And according to Houdini, when he performed an illusion for Doyle, he was disturbed that he couldn't seem to fully convince the author it was a trick. Still, their friendship continued up until June of 1922, when Doyle urged Houdini to participate in a seance led by his wife, Lady Jean Doyle. On June 17, 1922, Lady Doyle claimed to channel the spirit of Houdini's dead mother and, through automatic writing, produced a long letter addressed to him. Houdini was not impressed. The letter was written in English, which his mother didn't speak, and contained a number of references to Christianity, even though she was Jewish. Houdini held his tongue out of politeness to his friend, but when Doyle publicly announced that the magician had been swayed to the spiritualist side, Houdini responded just as publicly to say that he most certainly had not. What followed was a years-long public argument between the two now former friends that got more and more bitter as it went. And it was during that debate that Houdini started exposing mediums as frauds. In his new role as a prominent psychic investigator, Houdini was asked to join a committee formed by Scientific American, which was offering a prize of $10,000 to anyone who could conclusively demonstrate psychic abilities. One of the leading contenders for the prize was Mina Crandon, a Boston housewife and purported medium who had been discovered and championed by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The investigation into Mina Crandon began without Houdini, and soon J. Malcolm Byrd, an editor with Scientific American, was dropping statements saying that Crandon appeared to be the real deal and was primed to prove spiritualism true. 
Houdini was incensed. He strode into the magazine's office and angrily approached Bird, saying in effect that his reputation was on the line, and it wasn't Bird's place to go around saying something was true before he'd even had a chance to examine it. Then he headed to Boston to check out Mina Crandon for himself. When he arrived, he found that two of the Scientific American investigators were staying at the Crandon's house. And both of them, Bird and his associate, Hereward Carrington, appeared to be in love with her. Crandon's act was a lot like other mediums. She claimed to have a spirit guide in the form of her dead brother, Walter, who could tell her things she couldn't know and move objects around the room, but only when it was dark. But Crandon's routine was also full of conspicuous seduction. She wore a transparent nightgown and frequently in the course of her seances would end up sitting in the laps of the investigators, sometimes kissing and touching them. Dr. Crandon had promised to pay Bird for his time and any expenses, and Carrington had borrowed money from the doctor. Worse still, years later, both Carrington and Bird would claim to have slept with Mina. Bird just once, Carrington in a long-running affair. Once again, Houdini was livid, chiding Bird and Carrington that it is not possible to stop at one's house, break bread with him frequently, then investigate him and render an impartial verdict. Houdini would stay in a hotel down the road. Thank you very much. He initially sat in for two seances with Mina, and at the end told the committee that he had discovered how she had performed them. In the darkness, Walter had supposedly rung a bell, but Houdini was able to feel around in the dark and came upon Mina's foot doing the ringing. When Walter pushed over the table they were sitting at, Houdini reached out and found Mina's head lifting it up. He informed the other members that he intended to expose Mrs. Crandon and to keep it secret. Which they did not. Bird went right to the Crandons and told them what Houdini had said. Then he went to the papers ahead of Houdini and told the opposite story, that the committee had been unable to detect any fraud, that the medium was real. There were complimentary headlines all around the country. Boston medium baffles experts. Psychic power of Marjorie established. And worst of all, Houdini the magician stumped. For the third seance, Houdini demanded Bird resign, and he did. He'd later go on to be a promoter for Mina. Houdini also demanded that Mina perform from within a locked box, with restraints, so she had no way to grab or kick or headbutt anything. Even before the experiment began, Mina and Houdini were at each other's throats, and when it actually did begin, with Mina snugly strapped into her box, Walter arrived. Mina's dead brother, speaking through her mouth with approximately her voice, but gruffer, immediately claimed that Houdini had stuck something in the box to set Mina up. When it was opened, there it was, a ruler. Houdini said that Mina must have snuck it in, hoping to put it in her mouth to ring a bell on the table in the dark, but Mina said she'd done no such thing and that Houdini was planting evidence. There was a bunch of back and forth about this before they finally agreed to one last seance. Beforehand, Houdini and the Crandons went out to dinner together. 
Mina had heard Houdini planned to recreate her full act on stage in Boston, and she pleaded with him, saying that she didn't want her son to hear that she was a fraud. To which Houdini reportedly answered, Then don't be a fraud. Once that very charming meal was over, they came back to the Crandon's house and set up for one last controlled experiment. Again, Mina was restrained, her feet contained within a box, while investigators held her hands on either side. The bell was put beyond her reach to kick or grab it, the lights were lowered, and the seance began. With Mina so constrained, Walter could not ring the bell. Houdini was convinced. As far as he was concerned, he'd proved the whole thing a hoax. But the Crandons refused to concede, and they got their friend, Houdini's ex-friend, to back them up, Arthur Conan Doyle. Doyle cast aspersions on Houdini and stood up for Mina Crandon. Bird continued to write that Crandon's effects were real, and Houdini had framed her, as did several others. When Scientific American finally published their report, the committee refused to deliver a verdict. It was a hung jury. Mina Crandon was free to keep calling upon her brother, and Houdini was free to keep demonstrating and writing about how he thought that worked. But officially, there was no decision. They needed a tiebreaker. So, in came J.B. Rhine. Joseph Banks Rhine was pursuing his PhD in botany at the University of Chicago in 1922, when he and his wife Louisa attended a lecture about the evidence for life after death. It was presented by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Natch. J.B. and Louisa were enthralled, and once his botany degree was completed, they moved to Harvard to study psychology under William McDougall, one of the Scientific American investigators of Mina Crandon. Ryan's interest wasn't really in psychology, it was in parapsychology, the term coined in German by Max Dessier, but eventually popularized by Ryan himself. Following in his new mentor's footsteps, J.B. Ryan decided to cast the final belated vote on the question of Mina Crandon. J.B. and Louisa Ryan were over their heads. Crandon's act changed and expanded over time, partly to impress and partly to evade. After Houdini's investigation, she'd even incorporated part of his controls, building a device which automatically tightened ropes around her feet and waist to restrain her, supposedly, from cheating. And although the Rhines really wanted their own set of controls, the Crandons resisted. They wished they could, of course. It would make their lives easier, too. If they could give the Rhines what they wanted, there'd be no doubt left whatsoever, and nobody wanted that more than Mina, but unfortunately there was no way around it. Walter would only appear in darkness. Still, in the darkness, right as Walter was beginning to materialize, JB spotted it. The ropes that had automatically tightened around Mina a few minutes before, released, and her secretly free foot reached up, rang a bell, picked up a megaphone, and threw it to the ground. Mina Crandon was a cheat. Not just that, JB realized. Mina Crandon was an obvious cheat. Sure, she could fool some gullible rubes or desperate mourners for a go or two, but anybody who watched her critically, let alone repeatedly, would know. 
including her husband, including the other researchers, Bird, Carrington, and the rest. So, in his report, he didn't just debunk her, he debunked them all. They weren't just duped, they were Confederates. Patsies. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who had already spent thousands of words defending Crandon from the attacks of Houdini and his friends, purchased an ad in the Boston Globe. It ran just a sentence long and read, J.B. Rhine is an ass. In the history of parapsychology, J.B. and Louisa Rhine's takedown of Mina Crandon and her flunkies was the last of an era, a crescendo on the streak of field studies that had begun with the Fox sisters almost a century earlier the last gasp of the second golden age of spiritualism. But we know that's not true, right? Because the next year, the Rhines came to Richmond, Virginia to test Lady Wonder, the psychic horse who predicted Jean Tunney's victory in the long count. J.B. and Louisa were accompanied this time by their former mentor, William McDougall. They were all representing their new employer, Duke University. Over the course of a month and a half, from the start of December 1927 until mid-January 1928, the Rhines performed six separate days of testing. On the first day, they gave Lady free reign, oops, that's a pun, to perform as she was accustomed and wished. Claudia Fonda stood beside her with the horse-sized keyboard splayed out in front in two rows. Lady Wonder was able to produce a series of numbers written down in secret by JB and only shared with Mrs. Fonda. She was able to tell the time within a quarter of an hour. She successfully answered a series of mathematical questions from arithmetic to fractions to cube roots. McDougal wrote out a number of words on a card, passed the card to Mrs. Fonda, who then commanded Lady to spell them, without telling her what the words were. The horse accurately plunked out, Mesopotamia, Carolina, Hindustan. She guessed Ryan's name, what he had in his hand, and where he was going after the test was done. She told him what bank to visit to borrow money, and gave a location for a recently missing high-profile hobo. She picked out pictures when asked to, of a dog, a camel, a pony, a sailboat, and on and on. In short, she succeeded in every test with flying colors. Aware of all the studies previously conducted on learned animals like Clever Hans and Muhammad, the Rhines were mostly fixated on the possibility of interference, conscious or otherwise, from Mrs. Fonda to her horse. If they could rule out her interference, control for the possibility, the case would explain itself. Psychic or parlor trick? So, for the first round of their controlled experiments, Mrs. Fonda was ordered not to speak or make any sound during the tests. And nevertheless, Lady was able to guess a series of randomly chosen numbers. Next, they ordered Fonda not to move, and still Lady was able to perform almost perfectly. Then the Rhines started to ratchet things up. They instructed Fonda to look away from Lady, then to close her eyes. Then they blindfolded her. JB and Louisa noted in their report that as these controls progressed, Lady's movements became less confident. 
as if her understanding of the blocks and pictures and her keyboard was dulled a little bit by not having Mrs. Fonda's eyes on them. But in the end, she continued to pick out the right letters and numbers and pictures as ever. Next, they began trying to remove Fonda from Lady entirely. Typically, Fonda explained, Lady needed her nearby in order to work, and when Louisa stepped in between them, Lady did seem consternated by the change and briefly refused to continue. But eventually, she was coaxed into the arrangement and again gave the right answers. When they put up a screen blocking Lady from seeing Mrs. Fonda's head or torso at all, she still succeeded. Then came the coup de grace. Up until this point, McDougal and the Rhines had been passing the answers they wrote down to Fonda. No matter what pains they took to avoid cross-contamination, they could never be sure until they iced her out. So they did. They wrote their answers down on some long pads of paper Fonda provided them, but they didn't share the paper with her. Ladies' answers under this setup slipped a bit. A good bit. She wasn't nearly as good at knowing things that Fonda did not. Yet still, her responses were better than chance alone. J.B. and Louisa Rhine, who had taken apart the era's most notorious and accomplished medium in a single sitting, were stumped. In their conclusion, they explained at length how the mundane explanations of conscious or unconscious signaling, of trained habits or rote recitation, had been eliminated. They concluded, there is left, then, only the telepathic explanation, the transference of mental influence by an unknown process. Nothing was discovered that failed to accord with it, and no other hypothesis proposed seems tenable in view of the results. Mina Crandon was a fraud. But Lady Wonder? Lady Wonder was, by scientific testing well-established, the real McCoy. So, while Mina's career, and the careers of so many like her, foundered in the years to come, Lady Wonders flourished. For more than a decade, Richmond's psychic horse dispensed advice, lottery numbers, and answers to any and all questions that came to her. Occasionally, someone else would come along to try to test her abilities. Dr. Thomas Garrett was a hard-nosed skeptic, but left impressed when Lady Wonder managed to locate his lost dog. When Leslie Kuhn, one of the world's foremost experts on hypnosis, dodgy credential, I know, came to visit, he too walked away convinced. A reporter for the Associated Press thought he could make a story out of debunking Lady Wonder, but instead was, quote, flabbergasted to find he believed. Eventually, the shine began to come off. When she was 15, Life magazine wrote a story about Lady, saying that she was losing her touch. As she grew older, her batting average was falling. A series of bad predictions cast a pall over the only certified true psychic horse in the nation. Business slowed, the newspapers moved on. The story had run its course. Then, in the spring of 1951, Lady Wonder received a different sort of guest. His name was Edmund Dewing, and he was in Richmond on vacation from his job as district attorney for Norfolk County, Massachusetts. Dewing paid his dollar for three questions, and like so many before and after him, he was gobsmacked by her answers. It wasn't until later that he realized he'd missed an important opportunity. 
a four-year-old boy by the name of Danny Matson had gone missing more than a year earlier in Quincy, Massachusetts. With no signs, no clues, and no leads, the community had almost given up hope. He should have asked about Danny, Dewing realized. So he phoned a friend in Richmond, asked him to go visit Lady on his behalf, and ask about the boy. When asked where Danny Madsen was, Lady answered, Pittsfield Water Wheel. There was no such thing as the Pittsfield Water Wheel, but Dewing took it on his own initiative to interpret. Maybe Lady meant the Field and Wild Water Pit, a rock quarry near the Madsen home. The police had already searched the pit back when Danny first went missing, but on Lady's skewed advice, Dewing told them to drain it and look again. And there, at the Field and Wild Water Pit, they recovered the body of young Danny Matson. Lady's role in finding the boy was her greatest feat. It rocketed her to a level of notoriety that exceeded calling any boxing match or baseball game. It put her on the front page of newspapers and magazines all around the nation, including Life, who ran a two-page spread apologizing for their previous doubts. The story was seen by people who had missing loved ones of their own, who had all but given up hope. Like Mr. and Mrs. Benjamin Heyman, whose son, a disabled escapee of a questionable asylum in Exeter, Maine, had gone missing months ago. According to Lady, Gary Heyman was alive but hurt, in a truck with good people in Kansas. And according to Lady, he could be found. So, Mrs. Heyman called the Exeter police, who called the Kansas police, who issued an all-points bulletin for a mute boy in a truck. After two weeks of searching, Kansas State Police finally found... nothing. Not a trace. It was a dead end, a waste of resources. Nobody followed up with Lady for clarification. But people don't write stories about psychic horses not finding lost boys. Just like how people don't walk out of a reading talking about the things a medium got wrong. So, Lady Wonder kept on, the light of adulation barely dimmed, until she was subjected to one last final investigation. It was 1956, three years out from the Heyman failure. John Cobbler, a reporter for the Evening Post, was assigned to write a fluff piece about the aging Lady Wonder and sent to Richmond to get some material. He brought along a friend, calling himself Banks, who was keenly interested in asking the horse some questions of his own. He asked Lady his name, and Lady typed B-A-N-K-S. He asked when his brother would return from Europe, and Lady responded, S-U-M-M-E-R. But the man didn't have a brother, and his name wasn't Banks. He'd introduced himself to Claudia Fonda under a pseudonym, chosen for the owner of Morocco, the talking horse who had wowed Queen Elizabeth centuries before. The man knew a thing or two about stuff like that. He was kind of like a historian, but for magic. His actual name was Milbourne Christopher, a writer and illusionist, a biographer and admirer of Harry Houdini, who followed in his footsteps, both as an accomplished magician and as an exposer of charlatans. (laughs) 
With two trick questions, Christopher was two-thirds of the way to bringing down Lady Wonder. Lady had made up a return time for his non-existent brother the same way any cold reader in any back room would. And she'd called him Banks because that is how he had been introduced to Fonda. Fonda, of course, was the key. As Christopher put it in his report, if Dr. Ryan was interested in testing for ESP, he should have ignored the horse and studied Mrs. Fonda. That's what Christopher was doing. As Lady plunked out Banks and Summer on her enormous contraption, Christopher kept his eye on Claudia. What he saw was that the horse shifted her head back and forth, hovering over the keys, and when her snout was above the right letter, Fonda made a slight, almost imperceptible movement with a stick in her hand. Lady, being a horse, had eyes on the sides of her head, so while she was wobbling to and fro, her focus was actually directed at the stick. And when she saw it move, she dropped her nose and hit the key. The Rhines had chalked up Lady's head movements and seeming lack of forward attention to a sort of mesmeric trance, and they thought they'd controlled for signaling with the blindfold and the partition. But the Rhines were scientists. What Lady needed was a magician. There was just one thing left to solve. How had Lady been able to furnish the Rhines with answers when they stopped sharing those answers with Fonda? Christopher had an inkling, and it was supported when Fonda brought out pads for them to write on. Pencil out a couple of numbers, and Lady will tell you what they are, she said. But the pads were a little bit funny. They were tall and narrow, like Fonda had taken a regular notepad and sliced it into three skinny ones. And Christopher knew why. He wrote a string of numbers on the pad, some of them normally, and some of them sneakily. For example, he made the motion of writing a nine, but only pressed the pencil to the page on the downstroke, drawing a one. Lady guessed nine. She got the normally written numbers right, but all the ones that he fainted, she screwed up. Because Mrs. Fonda was a skilled pencil reader. She watched the movements of writers practically unobstructed on her special skinny pads, and then gave her subtle instruction to Lady to tell what she had seen. Milborn Christopher had unmasked Lady Wonder where so many others had been fooled. He wrote that he didn't have to be so clever, though. There was proof of Fonda's fraud nailed to the side of Lady's barn. Just feet away from the psychic horse that could tell anyone anything, Fonda had posted a flyer asking if someone could find her lost dog. The Fox sisters eventually came clean and explained their methods, in detail and in print, though later one of them recanted and started up the act again when she needed money. Houdini died in October 1926, two months before the Rhines examined Lady. His hoax-busting days didn't end with his death, though. Before he passed, he gave his wife, Bess, a code, and said that he would try to contact her from beyond, if he could, but not to believe anyone who didn't give it. Bess held seances, sometimes with purported mediums, for the next ten years. A couple of spiritualists claimed to channel Houdini, but none of them could give the code. The code itself was a code itself, 
a string of words from their old act, which, Bess understood, spelled out a word, believe. Houdini never came back to tell her to, so Bess never did. Mina Crandon tried to revive her act by adding a new trick in which she asked Walter to imprint his thumb on a piece of wax. Investigators proved the thumbprints belonged to her dentist, from whom she'd taken a mold. She died on November 1st, 1941, after a long illness. The psychic researcher Nandan Fodor visited her on her deathbed and asked her if she would reveal her methods before she passed on. Her last words, according to Fodor, were, why don't you guess? Guess. You'll be guessing for the rest of your lives. She laughed, then turned over and died. Lady Wonder died at the ripe old age of 33, less than a year after Milbourne Christopher's visit on March 19, 1957. She had predicted her own death long before, but outlived her own prediction by more than three years. Almost a year to the day that Lady told the Richmond Times-Dispatch that Gary Heyman was in a Kansas truck, an 18-year-old boy in Hamilton, Rhode Island named Don Spink received a call from the Exeter police. They'd heard he had a pair of, quote, lucky teeth he was showing off around town. He said that was true, that he had taken them from a skull he'd found beneath a fir tree when he was hunting. He'd considered taking the whole skull, but was afraid he'd get in trouble. So instead, he'd taken the teeth. The next day, he led police to the fir tree, and the skull was recovered. Based on x-rays taken two years earlier, the ME concluded the skull belonged to Gary Heyman. And with the state of decomposition, it was clear it had been there, in the woods, since shortly after he'd gone missing from the lad school. Lady Wonder, or more to the point, Claudia Fonda, had lied, diverted police resources. Worst of all, she'd given the Heymans false hope, which was now dashed in as gut-wrenching a way as was possible. After rooting out Mina Crandon and failing to root out Lady Wonder, J.B. Ryan took the gig full-time. He became known as the father of parapsychology and formed the first-ever college department devoted to it at Duke in 1930. Louisa kept on doing fieldwork, investigating reports of psychics and psychic phenomena and recording their stories. But J.B. thought they needed something more. Most such research had been qualitative, anecdotal. Ryan wanted the quant, the data. So he devised a new way of trying to investigate psychic activity under laboratory conditions with robust reporting. He blazed a new trail for the serious treatment of supernatural claims. A trail that blazed for 80 years before it threatened to burn down science itself. And that is next time on The Constant. Music for this episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Whole bunch of people have joined the Constant Patreon recently, helping to make this show possible through their support. I'd like to thank all of you. In particular, Varun Nalam, Matthew T, Eric Kinder, David Roth, Nick Kingsbury, Tim Uijenjik, perhaps. Tim, sorry. Justin Walker, Lisa Millsap, Gabriel Ricardo Ennis, and Snow Me. 
if you want to join them, if you have that irresistible urge, you can by heading over to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up. For your trouble, you'll get access to the constant secret feed, where I put all new episodes early and ad-free, and break them up with exclusive bonus content just for supporters. And or tell a friend to listen. That's free, except for the cost of social capital you spend annoying people by talking about podcasts. But you were going to do that anyway, weren't you? Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where in 1977, animal psychologist Irene Pepperberg discovered Alex, an African gray parrot in a pet shop, who went on to become the most famous talking animal of modern times, this has been The Constant. The Constant.